So we're in week three of a series entitled, Does God Want You to Be Happy? We kicked it off with the answer to the question, which is yes. Yes, a happy God wants you to be happy. And according to the prophet Isaiah, gave you a gospel of happiness in order to secure it. Sin will destroy it. Forgiveness will restore it. And the Holy Spirit or the presence of God will fill it. And so we've been talking about happiness over the last couple of weeks. What we've also done is um, destroyed the myth that somehow joy and happiness are different things. Uh, Biblically, they're not different things. Joy and happiness are synonymous words in the scripture. The word happy, and when you properly understand the translation of the King James, is actually all over the scriptures. And so um, the first week was just building a doctrinal or theological uh, um, platform for this idea of happiness. And then last week, we gave the first of three steps to begin to see happiness occur in our lives. You see, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I knew a gospel of good works. I knew a gospel of work really hard and feel really bad if I sin, but then work really hard for God to love me again. What I didn't yet know at that point was a gospel of happiness. And I would describe my late teen years and my early 20 years as very busy, trying to follow God and deeply unhappy. And God did a work in me. And so this series has been in part testimony of what God brought me through over a decade ago. Now, the first step in that was when I was 18, I took my Bible and I put it up on the shelf. It was the only time in my life I've turned my back from God. And it isn't because I wanted to sin or party in college or anything like that. It was because it didn't make me happy. And I thought, why give my life to something that doesn't make me happy? A couple months later, I was invited to a Bible study, and we read Colossians chapter 3, and God stirred something in my heart that maybe there was a way to be in Christ where I can be both holy and happy, not just one or the other. I didn't immediately become happy after that moment, though. It was a few more years where God continued to work, and so uh, you guys get the fruit of what was kind of four years of not so much fun for me, uh, but now I get to share it for you, and hopefully it can help maybe some of you come into a more happy life in Christ. God wants you to be happy. He does. And it's not just knowing it, but then it's doing the steps. I often joke that the happiest week of my life was the week I quit college football. I actually played college football, if you didn't know that, not joking. And the week I quit was seriously one of the happiest weeks of my life. I knew I wanted to quit, but it wasn't until I actually looked at my coach and said, I'm done. And I walked out of there and I was like, this is awesome. I'm so happy. Knowing I wanted to quit didn't make me any happier. Actually quitting did. Knowing that you want to be happy, it's an innate thing inside of each human being is one thing. Walking the steps of God's path, like it says in Psalm 1611, walking that path is the path that will lead to it. It is God's path. We can't give in to these modern ideas that God wants me to be happy, so that means I get to do whatever I want. No, the scripture certainly doesn't say that. But what the scripture does do is lay out a plan, a path to follow. Like I said last week, it starts with the right perspective, eternity, not earth, Christ, not me, his timing, not my timing. And what that does, when you begin to have the right perspective in life, what it does is it puts a joy, I use that word for your benefit, not because it's different than happiness, but because we understand it differently. Uh, It puts a joy in the bottom of our heart. 
Maybe you can relate to this. In my early 20s, I knew I was supposed to have an eternal perspective. I knew that no matter how life got, that one day I was going to go to heaven and that that idea was supposed to give me joy. And it did. But I had joy at the bottom and a lot of sadness piled up on top. See, what the joy did or what that right perspective did is it did give me something at the bottom, but I often found myself thinking or hoping that I could just get through life so I could get to heaven where there would be no more tears and sorrow. And I knew that verse, of course, and would remind myself often what I didn't think was that it was possible to live a happy life here on this earth. And so joy was at the bottom, but it wasn't overflowing from the top. It wasn't until later, until these other two steps began to form in my life that there was a transformation from the despair. So I want to teach you the second step this week, and we'll get into the third one next week. The second step is the right people in our lives. The right people. See, when we have just the right perspective, but the wrong people, uh, then we might have an eternal joy, but not like an earthly happiness. When we have just the right people, but the wrong perspective, sometimes we'll have this fleeting happiness, but there will be a, a greater question of purpose and meaning that's underneath that we're like, I don't know what to do with that. It's when we have the right perspective and we build upon it the right people that happiness begins to bubble. The right people. This is all over the scriptures, by the way. In fact, What's the first problem in the Bible? It's mentioned really early. Somebody might go, ah, Genesis chapter 3. Yes, sin breaks into the world. That is true. That happened in Genesis chapter 3. But that's not the first problem mentioned in the Bible. The first problem in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2 when man is alone. And God says, that shouldn't be. The first problem in the Bible is loneliness. Loneliness. The first thing that God looked at and said, this isn't the way it's supposed to fully be, is man was alone. Loneliness. I think loneliness was the first problem in the Bible because God knew it would be the problem for the rest of humanity, for the rest of time. Loneliness. Maybe you've gotten this unbelievably unwise, unbiblical, and unhelpful advice before. God is the only friend you need. How stupid is that? Adam lived in a perfect world. He was completely holy. He had unfeathered access to God. He was working. He had a job, a big one, take over and subdue the earth. Great job. Great relationship with God. And yet there was a problem. You know what this teaches us? No amount of satisfying work, no amount of holiness will satisfy the relational need that you have. You can try and be as holy as possible. You can try to have as much success. It will never satisfy the relational need in your heart. You got to have the right people in your life. 
So God gave Adam a wife. That's how he took care of that one. There's a couple of other examples. We'll get into those later. But this issue is right at the beginning. God knew how to take care of the problem with a real person. Psalm 107 is our key text for this morning. And in Psalm 107, what we see here is uh, three different people who are dissatisfied in life for three different reasons. And I believe in it, there is one solution that is given to it. The psalm actually starts off really optimistic. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. And so it's telling the story of these redeemed people who have been transformed by God, and he's gathered them up together now in a group. But then at the beginning of each stanza, what he does is he lays out some different issues that these people were plagued with. Maybe you can relate to some of them. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their souls fainted within them. Why were they hungry and thirsty? Because they had no city to dwell in. Now, the ESV, I don't think necessarily sets it up the way the author meant. It, doesn't mean, it didn't mean, doesn't mean, that they couldn't find a city at all, that they were just in the desert and there weren't any cities. What it means is they couldn't find a city to dwell in. They were wanderers. They hopped from friend group to friend group, from church to church, from place to place, from relationship to relationship. And they moved from each one and each one, and every time they, they could never settle into one that they could find that they could dwell in. If you would have asked me in my early 20s, what is your most uncomfortable setting? A lot of times people only know me because I'm on stage, and so they always say two things. One, I thought you were taller. Sorry, right? And then, uh, and secondly, they say, well, you seem so energetic, you, which I am a pretty energetic person, and this is a transformation. But in my early 20s, if you would have said, what do you, what situation in life do you hate the most? I would have said being surrounded by like 8 to 10 to 12 people terrifies me. Put me on stage in front of however many, doesn't matter. Put me in a room with eight to 10 where we're just supposed to be having fun and I feel horrible. Want to disappear. Feel disconnected. Feel like out of whatever is happening. Felt alone. And what that would cause me to do is um, be overcome by this sense of despair where after I would leave this group gathering, go back to my apartment and it would cause me to do two things. The two things mentioned here in the Psalms. In verse 10 and 11, the first thing that is mentioned is this. Some sat in darkness or isolation and in the shadow of death, prisoners inflicted and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. The first thing that loneliness has a tendency to do is to push us into further isolation and then into patterns of sin. So I've been very public about this. My addiction to online gambling, you know what that came out of? Loneliness. If I can't, if I'm not going to have great friendships, if, if I'm not going to have a fulfilling relational world, well, at least I can make some money. Or at least I can go play poker. And maybe you find yourself in a sin pattern right now. And if you really got at the heart of it, one of the things that's pushing you into that 
is a lack of true relationship, is a despair over relational life, dissatisfaction in marriage or dissatisfaction in friendship, whatever it might be. Now, I knew I wanted to be holy, and so I knew this sin was an issue, and so it would grieve my heart, making me even more unhappy than I was before, but it was this nasty cycle. So I thought, well, why don't I go do something else? Why don't I apply this energy, for lack of a better term, to something else? And so I think I became the person in Psalm 107, verse 21, or 22, 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. See, that stands in verse 23 and 24. It starts off with these people who are really successful and they're really busy and they're doing all of the good things and life is going the way that they want it to go. But by the end of the stanza, they're in despair. (laughs) Modern language, we would use the term networkers or busybodies. These people have a vast network. These people have lots of things to do. This can either be, by the way, um, secular, like business, or sometimes we just cover this in ministry. There's just as many people who use ministry as an outlet for this as they do like building a business or something like that. For me in my early 20s, I had started a business. I was coaching. I was um, running a ministry, and I was in school. All four of those things. And what I did is I just kept doing all of them and kept adding to all of them. I thought the busier I stay and the more I just keep doing and adding to my life, the happier I will become. And for the most part, I could medicate myself with busyness most of the week, except for five o'clock on Friday. And the happiest, unhappiest, excuse me, unhappiest 24 hours of my life from Friday to five till about Saturday at four or five when my work would begin again. No amount of career, success, ministry, business, or work for God will satisfy the relational need in your heart. You can keep adding, you can keep doing, you can keep building. It's not what your heart needs most. Some were wanderers, some filled it with sin, some filled it with busyness. That was the problem. It was a search for meaningful relationship. God had a solution, as he always does. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their souls fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Yes, you are allowed to cry out to God and you are allowed to pray for friendship. In fact, you probably should. The reason their souls were thirsty, the reason they're hungry uh, is because of the lack of genuine relationship. And so what they do, they cried out to God. God, the success over here doesn't do it in the end. God, the sin that I, that I think is going to fill this doesn't either. I don't want it anymore. God, please hear me. And he does. They cried to the Lord in the trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Let me say it another way. He delivered them from their wandering. Let me say it more clearly. He delivered them from their loneliness. He delivered them from it. Some of you right here, the very hint of being able to live a life 
that isn't lonely. It is like a spark of life. There is a correlation, a strong one, between the level of our friendships and relationships and the level of our despair, depression, or happiness. And what did God do here? It says, he led them by a straight way. He led them. The good news about this is that you don't necessarily have to solve or fix the problem on your own. At some point, he's going to ask you to do something and to take some steps, and he's going to give you some prompts. But after you pray and you cry out to him, it says he will lead them, or he did lead them, and he will lead you. He will lead you by a straight way. This is something that God wants to do quickly. This is something that God wants to make available to you. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. God's response to the wanderer was here. Here's a city. In the Old Testament, the doctrine or the theology is typically around the city. In the New Testament, we would take that word city out often and put it in the word church. See, the whole idea was building this uh, community, this, this place, uh, this safe haven. So in the Old Testament, that's a city. In the New Testament, that's the church. Finding a church to dwell in, to settle in safe haven. So for the rest of this sermon, what I want to do, I hopefully I've convinced you of the need for this. What I want to do is two things at the same time. One, I want to talk about what the, the safe haven or what it means to dwell in at Redemption Church and what that looks like. And, and while I'm doing that and talking about those values, I also want you to see how those would then apply to your own life and your own circle. So we'll kind of try and look at both of them along the way. What does this city look like? What, what does, what does um, the scripture say? We see it in Genesis chapter 2. We see it in the Psalms. And then we see it all over the New Testament. In fact, I would submit that if you read through Paul's letters now with this idea in mind, you'll see it everywhere. How relational Paul was in his life. How, yes, dependent and uh, upon God he was, but, but just as, maybe you think this is heresy, as just as dependent as he was on God, he was on other people. It's all throughout the text. Let me say it this way for myself. In my despair, in my loneliness, what I didn't hear from God and what didn't rescue me was, Stephen, you need to do more. Start something else. It wasn't the sin that I had chased. No, what rescued me in the end was the most beautiful thing. Settlers of Catan. If you've played Settlers of Catan, you know why this is such a true statement. Uh, if you don't know what Settlers of Catan is, it's, it's a board game. And uh, the greatest board game, not just a board game, it is the board game. And Settlers of Catan... Uh, it came out, well, it came out like a couple years before, and then it got mainstream. And some of you think I'm joking right now. I'm not joking, okay? Settlers of Catan became a focal point, for lack of a better term, of a friendship group that I formed where, I kid you not, we played a hundred straight days, this one game. God formed a friendship around that table and around that game that ended up changing my life. 
I don't even talk to those people anymore, really. But there was something that began to happen in that season, a joy that began to lift that has changed everything since then. Now, as I look back on that time period and ask myself, what existed in that friendship group outside of Catan? What has then existed now in the groups or the circles or the cities that I have dwelt in since then? That, uh, what are those common themes? Those common themes then that I saw in that are also all throughout the scriptures. By the way, you know what the first one was? <laughs> it was fun. Like friendship typically starts with, this is fun. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Friendship begins when you look at somebody else and you go, oh, you too? You too play Catan? You too like to knit? You too fill in the blank? You too? That's where that friendship began. The scripture says it this way. In Philippians chapter 2, when Paul is encouraging the church at Philippi, and he says, all of you now, if we're going to move through this, and actually Philippians 2 is a great doctrine of biblical friendship. In Philippians chapter 2, it starts with this idea that we collectively are to be like-minded like Christ or as Christ. That, that what begins this city, what the, the, the overwhelming or overarching value of this city is like-mindedness, like-mindedness around the person of Jesus, which means uh, true Christian community and then good biblical friendship starts around this idea of, oh, you too love Jesus? You too have experienced this gospel? You too have been rescued from death to life? You too know uh, what, I, uh, what I mean when I say I just love Jesus with everything I am? You too, you know that, and that sparked it. And so that's why as a church, like the first thing we always have to rally around is, is our mutual love for Jesus. That he too rescued you and he rescued me. I'm not going to stop here, though, because I know a lot of you have been in church environments where everybody would say that they love Jesus, but you still felt deeply alone. And so it does. It starts there, but it has to be more than that. It has to be more than that. Can't just be that. And so as we continue to read through Paul and his letters, we see some other values begin to form in this idea of friendship. Another Value is this, a friendship or a city, a church formed around the passing out of grace rather than that of condemnation. Nothing will kill a friendship or a relationship quicker than unnecessary spiritual judgment. Nothing will make the other shrink in more. Remember, the 90s and the 2000s, when the path to true Christianity was to make sure you had an accountability partner. And if you were a guy, that just means you have to have one person in your life who you tell if you look at porn. Sorry if that's too honest for you, but that's basically what it meant. So the whole relationship was built around trying to hide this one part of your life, but having somebody in there in your life, if, uh, if you did, then you would tell, but then it would create this weird awkwardness because that's like the only time that you sat down and had a real conversation. 
So instead of building relationship, true relationship, around the idea of confessing your lowest sin to that person, or they're going like, to you know, hold you accountable, what if we just built relationships around the idea of spreading and passing a grace that is so beautiful and amazing that it compels you to not even want to sin? You know what? I noticed this. The times in my life, in my earliest uh, in my early days, where I was the least prone to sin were the times in life when I was most surrounded by good people. I used to joke, and I would say, earmuffs if you need to, no one looks at porn at camp. Right? Bye, guys. <laughs> Bye, Jack. Jack, I love you. These moments when, you're, when your relational world is strong and good, it's so much easier to say no to sin. What if you had a life like that? Not just camp. Pass out grace. Set a condemnation. Now, oftentimes in the church, this gets messed up. It gets messed up because what can happen in the church is we create cultures where confession of sin leads to your crucifixion. And the concealment of sin leads to promotion. It's a dangerous culture to create in church where if you confess your sin, you get booted, you get kicked out, you get whatever. But if you just hide your sin, if you just conceal your sin, if you just don't let anyone else know about it, then you're good. Climb the fast track. It's no city to dwell in. It's no city to dwell in where, where, where the, uh, the confession of sin and it now means that you have to be separate. No, the, the proper city is a, is a city that says, yes, sin is real and it's horrible and it's bad and we hate it and we don't want to see it. But the only path to freedom is to be in an environment where we can offer you grace in the midst of it. The next area of biblical friendship, Paul says this in Philippians 4. He says, thank you for sharing in my trouble. What a simple but profound verse. Thank you for sharing in my trouble. And what Paul is looking at at that moment, he's reminding them of the time when he was in chains. And he's saying, in my lowest moment, in my darkest moment, you shared in my trouble. You saw a weighty thing. And instead of looking from a distance and saying, great, I'll pray for you, which means I'm not going to do anything, or look and say, oh, that looks really weighty, and walk the other way. Paul says, in biblical friendship, when you see a big weight, you step in, you go, how can I help you carry that? That is a city in which to dwell in. When Adam was alone in the garden, what did God do? Sent him a person. When Moses 
was too scared to do the God-given call on his life, what did God do? Sent him a person. When David was being chased, what did God do? Literally sent him 400 crazy people in the wilderness. If you want to make redemption in your home church, we'll be your crazy people. We'll be the people that will stand by you when the weight gets heavy. We'll be the people who will know when things aren't going exactly the way you want them to in life. We'll be the people who will show you grace and not condemnation. We'll be the people who will come along beside you in your lowest moment and instead of reminding you of the bad thing you did, point you to the future that God has for you. When Jesus went to the cross, what did he do? And when he went to the garden, excuse me, what did he do? He brought his friends. And all throughout the scriptures, when Paul needed refreshed, what did God do? He sent him people. Enough of this overly spiritualized, go find it in God. You can find it in God through his people. That's, that's how it was always supposed to be. So maybe not the lowest moment of my life, but one of the lowest moments of my life. I would read Psalm 107.9. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And I would just say it to myself every morning, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And for me, in that moment, or in those moments in that season, God sent me, my wife. And in a lower moment, God sent me two older guys who are the elders of our church who looked at me and said, get back up, man. And God gave me a city church in which to dwell in. Sometimes people say, hey, what should we call you? What should we call you? Pastor, reverend, bishop? Say, no, my name's Stephen. Stephen. You can call me Stephen. Because I read a lot of articles that tell me that I'm supposed to be lonely as a pastor. I read a lot of articles that tell me that that I'm supposed to be exhausted. But I'm just pursuing the gospel with my best friends. And that's anything but exhausting. It's really fun. And it satisfies my longing soul. 
And I want that for each of you. And I can't be each of your best friends, but we can create a culture like we just talked about where God satisfies the longing souls and builds upon a right perspective the right people. Let's pray. Father, my heart breaks for those who have worked so hard to be holy, have given so much time and effort and energy into endeavors, yet know what I knew at that age, the vast emptiness of loneliness. Some experience it in a marriage, others in a family or even a church. And Father, we are not perfect. So help us. Help us to do this as best as we can and help create here a city for people to dwell in. Grace, not condemnation carrying each other's trouble, partnering together in the advancement of the gospel. And as that happens, may it just lift and put a happiness in our hearts. Father, for those longing whose souls are not satisfied, I pray in a straight way you would lead them into the right city, the right church or the right circle, even within our church. I know you want to do that for people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.